So we're in the end of a series called Stand Firm. The whole idea of this series, this whole month, had been what can we watch out for, the schemes and strategies of the devil, what can we watch out for so that we know how to stand firm against those same schemes and strategies. And we get that out of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse, 7, verse 8. We're told this, stay alert, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. We said this very early on, but let me say it one more time to catch you up if you need it. When we say the devil, when we read about the devil, it's not some theoretical idea or spiritual force. No, the devil is real. Ephesians 6 tells us that our enemy is not against flesh and blood, but against the evil forces the spiritual in the spiritual realm, including the devil. So the devil is not some guy with like a red cape and pitchfork. No, he's truly our adversary. That everything that God is trying to pull you towards, he's trying to pull you in the opposite direction. So again, we're told to stay alert. Watch out for our great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So we've been looking at all the schemes and strategies the devil uses so we know what to watch out for. We start out by saying, watch out for the devil's lies. We looked at Genesis 3 in the beginning of creation, where the devil is a liar, still a liar today. In fact, Jesus' words called him the father of lies. So we watch out for the lies, but we stand firm in the truth of God. Then we saw how the devil tempts us. He's the tempter. His strategies and schemes on using our own desires against us and dangles them out in front of us for us to be pulled away, even dragged away, as James tells us. So he is a tempter, a deceiver. So what do we do to stand firm? We hold true to God's word and follow his ways, not our ways. So stay alert and watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What do we do? Like we've been saying, stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Watch out and stand firm. The way we're going to wrap up today is, again, looking at Jesus' words on one of the ways that he described the devil, our great enemy. He said this in John 10, 10, Jesus' words, the thief, referring to the devil, comes only to steal and kill, and this last part is what we're going to hang out with today, destroy. That's what he does. The devil comes to steal and kill and destroy, pulling you away from anything of God. But Jesus says, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You feel like us in the middle being pulled in two different directions, where God on one side pulling us and drawing us towards him, the devil on the other side literally drawing and pulling us away, trying to steal us away from God and doing everything he can to destroy our faith in him and destroy our lives in the process. So my hope for you this morning, my prayer for you this week, has been that your eyes and ears would be open to the subtle schemes of the devil. When we think of destruction, we think of like major destructive powers and major destructive events. We don't always think about the seemingly small and we might even say insignificant and innocent things. But when you look into them, they truly cause destruction. So may our eyes and ears be open to the small aspects of our lives that the devil uses to truly destroy us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the words that we get from you. I pray that as we open your word, that you would speak to us into our hearts through your Holy Spirit, that our eyes and ears and hearts would be open to what you would say to each of us individually, that you would guide us and lead us in our next steps in following you, not our way, not the ways of anyone or anything else, but only following you 
every step of the way. We know we won't do it perfectly, so we are thankful for your grace and your forgiveness as we stumble in the right direction. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, and in fact, my family still lives up in Cincinnati. My, my family, my parents are in Cincinnati. My wife's uh, family lives on this, the east side of Indiana, so like, our whole family currently lives or at least is from that tri-state area. In fact, my two older boys, Connor and Cole, they are in Cincinnati, Ohio right now, uh, supposed to be watching church if I understand it correctly. So they may or may not be following through, but if you are on there, good to see you guys, I miss you. But they're spending this week with their parents, uh, their grandparents, and so we get to have just a house with Collins this week, which is very interesting and weird, but I digress. So up in Cincinnati, Ohio, since I'm still connected with that area, I still get news alerts from the Cincinnati and tri-state area. I got this alert on my phone a couple weeks ago where the police department, the Cincinnati Police Department, put out an article, which was really a warning, because of something that had been happening all throughout uh, the Cincinnati area. Here's a picture of what they posted. It was a car that had been in a pretty major accident. The gentleman that was driving the car, he is totally okay. Um, But they wanted to send out an article that gave this warning. Because when you see this wreck and many other wrecks like it, we begin to think, well, what probably happened was, and we begin to fill in the blank with all sorts of different ideas, right? And, And sure, most of those can happen. They're, the idea of a, of a car accident is pretty common with a lot of different explanations. What made this interesting was the explanation given. So imagine you're, you're the police officer. You come up on the scene. The gentleman's okay. And the first question is, sir, tell me what happened. And his answer shocked a lot of people. His answer was a cicada. Now, if you've been following the news, you know that not so much in our area here, but in the Midwest and especially in the Northeast, cicadas are wreaking havoc all over. These little ugly insects are causing so many problems. So the police officer again looks at the gym and says, "Uh uh-huh, sir, I'm going to have to ask you to step over here. Can you touch your nose with your finger with me, sir? No, 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 I promise there was a cicada and it caused me to wreck. Yes, I understand, sir. I would like to ask you to walk in a straight line for me. (laughs) But no, they looked in the car and sure enough, there's a cicada inside the car. What had happened was this guy was driving down the street, windows down, a cicada flew in, smacked him in the face, he lost control and hit a pole. Now, if that was a one-time thing, you'd think, okay, just an anomaly. It was happening all over the tri-state area. People were wrecking their cars and getting into major accidents because cicadas were flying in their windows, hitting them in the the face, causing all of these wrecks. So the police put out that article, that picture with this warning. Fellow citizens of the tri-state area, please drive with your windows up. I kid you not. Because of all the accidents, because of all the destruction being caused, by these insects flying in a window, hitting somebody in the face and causing them to lose control of their vehicle, causing major damage. So we don't think of an insect causing that much destruction, but they most certainly can. And there's an aspect of our lives, there's a scheme and a strategy of the devil that leads to destruction, that leads to the destruction of our faith and even the destruction of our lives if we're not careful. So we're going to do exactly what 1 Peter tells us, tells us to do. Watch out, stay alert, so that we can stand firm against the strategies and schemes of the devil. So to look at what that seemingly insignificant thing is that causes such destruction, 
We're going to look at a story in the Old Testament out of 1 Chronicles chapter 21. So if you got your Bibles, be in 1 Chronicles towards the very beginning of the Old Testament, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and then 1 Chronicles. Most of this section of scripture is dedicated to talking about the lives of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. So we're going to do that. We're going to see a king of Israel. We know him as King David, same King David that uh, we know the story of David and Goliath. That David has now become king, and he has accomplished so many different things, conquered so many different nations, won so many different battles, and God has elevated him to king of Israel. But something is going to happen, something that seems like no big deal, that is going to lead to major destruction of Israel. Here's the, here's the section we're going to look at. First Chronicles chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Look at how it starts. Satan rose up against Israel and caused David to take a census of the people of Israel. Can we just pause there for a second and recognize how big of a deal that is? It seems very actually underwhelming, doesn't it? That Satan, the devil himself, rose up against Israel and prompted and talked David into taking a census of the entire nation. Ooh. Is it really that big of a deal? Like you're telling me that out of all the strategies and schemes of the devil, a census is what he went with here? Out of all the ways that he could destroy David, and if you've been in church long enough, you know some of the, the difficulties and some of the sins and some of the problems that David went through. We immediately think of the sin with Bathsheba. Now that would have been a sin that could really destroy David and Israel. But no, the devil decided to use a census to destroy David and Israel. Now, let me say a couple things about this census before we finish the rest of the story. First of all, by in no form or fashion is this section of scripture, or am I trying to say there's something sinful and wrong about like modern day taking a census? So don't take that liberty. That's not the point. The idea, especially in Old Testament census that we're taking, is God saying, God mandating, I want to know where my people are, who my people are, and then to give account for them. So anytime a census is taken for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, God is saying to his leader, Moses or David or whoever, take a census but it's not for the individual. So David is taking a liberty on his own. That's important. We're going to talk through it. But very, very different than a census that we would take today. There's nothing wrong with that one. This is a different context here. So Satan rose up against Israel, ended up talking David into taking a census of the people of Israel. That is going to lead to their destruction. Verse 2, look what happens next. So David says to Joab and the commanders of the army, take a census of all the people of Israel from Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north and bring me a, re a report. This next part's important. So I may know how many there are. It goes without being stated. It's stating the obvious, but let me say it anyway. He wants to know exactly how many people are under his command as king, which is exactly what a census does. He wants to know the number how many are there? That's what he wants to know. We're going to figure out why a little bit later. Verse 3. But Joab, his commander of the army, said this. He replied, may the Lord increase the number of his people a hundred times over. In other words, David, I have nothing against with the growth of our country and the growth of our people. And may God continue to bless us. Like he has no problem with that at all. But why? My Lord, the King, do you want to do this? Why are you asking for a census? Why do you want to know the number? He goes on and says, aren't they not all your servants? Why must you cause Israel 
to sin. So even his commander recognizes the sin that taking the census would have been. Again, we'll get to why it is in a minute. He recognizes, and I don't want us to blow through this part because there's a, there's a real important side lesson here, a teachable moment. This is why it's so important to have good, godly people around you, no matter what your position is. A king or a servant, have good, godly people around you that can point out the sin in your life. People that can look at you and say, David, are you sure? I mean, king, why would you do this? Like, let's think this through. Why would you want to cause the entire nation to sin? You've got to have people in your life that are willing to call things out in your life. Just like Joab was doing for David. The difference is David didn't listen. Verse four, but the king insisted. Oh, how we insist on sinning at times. But King David insisted that they take the census. So Joab traveled throughout all Israel to count the people. Then he returned to Jerusalem and reported the number of people to David. There were 1.1 million warriors in all Israel who could handle a sword and 470,000 in Judah. But Joab did not include the tribes of Levi and Benjamin in the census because he was so distressed at what the king had made him do. So in other words, this commander, Joab, knew what this, was do, what this census was doing, that that was against God. And he was so distressed, he couldn't even finish following King David's orders here. Now, there's something to notice here that's real important. Did you notice how the numbers were defined or described? So David got his number, but it said there was 1.1 million warriors in all Israel who could handle a sword. That's interesting because earlier on, didn't David command Joab to go and get a census of all people, men, women, and children of all of Israel and all of Judah in every corner of their people? I want a number of all our people. So there's two options here. There's two explanations. One is that Joab and the commanders taking the census disobeyed a direct order from King David. Possible, not very likely. That instead of giving all people, they just presented the military number. The more likely idea and option here is that King David corrected himself or at least gave the nod of what I'm really looking for is warriors who can handle a sword because that's the number that was given to him. So he started out saying, I just need to know every single person. And the commanders of the army said, we know what you really want. You really don't care about everybody. You really just want to know the strength and power of your army. Right, David? Well, maybe <laughs> is where that was going. So instead of giving, getting a true number, what he ended up getting was the warriors in all of Israel who could handle a sword. Kind of shows a little bit more of his motives in taking the census. I want to know my power. I want to know my might. I want to know what I can conquer. I want to know the risk assessment of if I'm invaded, will I succeed? He's wanting to put a number on it. Verse 7, God was very displeased with the census, and he punished Israel for it. There are consequences for our sins. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Verse 8, then David said to God, and this is why David is a man after God's own heart, Scripture tells us. David said to God, I have sinned greatly. And if you've got your Bible or a way to like highlight on your phone, circle the word greatly. I have sinned greatly by taking this census. Please forgive my guilt for doing this foolish thing. So let's kind of recap what just happened. Because we're talking about things 
strategies and schemes of the devil that cause major destruction, that destroy our faith and our lives. So what did the devil do in David's case? A man with a strong faith, a man that is called even a man after God's own heart, he whispers in David's ear, take a census, which is almost laughable. But understand the context. If you've heard the phrase, kicked when you're down, right? Sometimes when you're feeling low and you're feeling down and you have nothing seems to be going right and you have nothing going on well, like that's where it feels like you can get attacked, which I don't disagree with that. But don't miss the other side. It's not just kicked when you're down. It's, and Satan will come after you when you're doing great, which is what he does to David. David was not down and out. This was a great moment for David. He had been accomplishing great things. God had used him to conquer incredible things. And here is the moment that the devil starts to whisper, David, you're doing awesome. You're incredible. Let's find out just how awesome you are. Let's find out just how incredible you are. Let's find out just how mighty you are. Let's find out just how powerful you are. Let's put a number on it, David. Go ahead, take a census and see it. Prove it to yourself and prove it to everyone else just how great you are, just how strong your army is, just how great of a king and commander you are, David. Go ahead, find out the number. And he did, because he wanted to know how great he truly was and to put a number on it. There's a word we use for that. The word is pride. Pride. It doesn't seem like a very big deal. And even as we're going to see our modern day culture and world, maybe even celebrates aspects of pride. But here David has an inflated sense of pride because of all that he thinks he's accomplished. But what the devil is doing is a scheme that will lead to destruction and punishment. And if you keep reading, that's as far as we're going to go in this story. But if you keep reading through the rest of chapter 21, you'll see the destruction caused by David's sin of pride. Proverbs tells us this. The book of wisdom says this. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before, say it with me, goes before, oh, wait, wait for it to get up there. Pride goes before what? destruction. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. Haughtiness means like I'm elevated. I am high above anything and anyone else. I have an inflated sense of importance and value. I put myself above anything and anyone else. And pride, a great tool of the devil, a great tool of our enemy and our adversary, is to whisper the false confidence of pride in our ears, just like he did with David. Seems pretty insignificant, yet it causes great destruction. Pride basically is taking credit for what is, should be given to God. It's taking credit for the things of God. It's stealing God's glory in a sense. Using maybe a church term, pride is ultimately self-worship. It's look at me. It's look at what I did. Look at what I can do. Look at everything that I've accomplished. Look at my greatness. Look at my power. Instead of pointing it to God and saying, no, look at your greatness and your goodness and your faithfulness. Pride ultimately is all about self. So for David, I want to know my power, my might, my opportunities based on that over 1.5 million warrior number. That's what he wanted to look at. And the pride is what's going to eat him away. C.S. Lewis said it this way in Mere Christianity about pride. He said, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. 
A proud man is always looking down on thing and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Oh, I love that. A great description of, of pride that says, if I am prideful, if I am proud, then I am looking down. I've elevated myself above anything and everyone else. So I look down on everything and everyone, which means I can never see who's above me, our Heavenly Father. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you some phrases based on David's story here, David's downfall of pride here, that I think, well, I'm hoping, sound a little too familiar to us. Because again, there's elements and aspects of pride that are celebrated in our modern day culture and world. So we need to watch out for them, be aware of them, because it doesn't seem like a big deal, but that's how pride sneaks in. Again, leads to destruction. So let's go through these. We see these in the story with David and how pride got the best of him, and then we'll see how we stand for him against it. Here's the first one. The pride of possession. Possession, the things that I have. The pride of possession says, look at what I have. It's all about the stuff. And again, that was the whole point of the census for David. Look at everything I have. Look at all the people I have. And we do the same thing in our day today. Look at all my stuff. Look at everything that I have, the pride of possession. The next one we see is the pride of performance, or you might say like the pride of accomplishment. This one says, look at what I've done. It's a look in the past saying, look at everything that I've accomplished. Look at everything that I've done, how I've performed and how great I was at it. I mean, think of our resumes. That's all it is. Look at everything that I've done and what I've accomplished and all of my accolades and all of my victories, my successes, my accomplishments. It's all about look at what I have done. We have the pride of power. Look at what I can do. See, that's again, once David has that number, once he knows exactly how many warriors in all of Israel who could handle a sword, once he has that number, now he can say, all right, team, Here's who we can conquer next based on our forces and their forces. We don't need permission from God anymore. See, there was a point in David's life where he relied on God for every victory. It didn't matter what the numbers were. It didn't matter what the, the, the odds were against them. In fact, David, before he was king, when he went out to fight Goliath, Everybody told him, no, no, you can't fight Goliath. You're not strong enough. You're not big enough. You don't have enough experience. And David's response was, doesn't matter. I've got God on my side. He's the one that's going to win the victory. He's the one that's going to win the battle. And somewhere along the way, it turned to, ooh, now I can control this. I have 1.5 million soldiers. Now I know who I can attack and who I can conquer and how I can defend our country. It's Look at what I can do. The power of pride it says, look at what I can do. Look at my abilities, my power. That's what David was looking at. Very last one, the pride of popularity. The pride of popularity says, look at what people think of me. Look at what people think of me. If you read through the stories of David and the accounts of David, David was so successful as king, people were lining the streets to chant his name. They would line the streets to, to celebrate all that God had done through David. I mean, I can almost picture David like getting his 1.5 million soldiers together and taking a selfie, saying, look at all my guys, who's next, right? Hashtag ruler of the world. I mean, I could see him doing all this and how many likes am I going to be getting? Because it becomes, we eat that up, don't we? We become 
infatuated with other people's praise, with other people's approval even. So that's what we see in David and how pride began to weasel his way in. First of all, saying, look at what all I have. Look at everything that I've done. Look at what I can do. And look at what people think of me. That's what we have to watch out for. And again, those phrases are kind of common in our culture today. We say them often without the fear of too much destruction coming from them. So if that's what we watch out for, how do we stand firm? At least in my life, I'm convinced that God gives me multiple throughout my day, daily, ways to be humbled, right? So that would be the flip side of this. If we're proud and elevating ourselves, well, then God and others come along and humble us. They humiliate sounds maybe more like a better way to describe it. That's what it feels like at times. For me, the little angels that humble me throughout my day are my three kids, constantly. I think I've got something figured out or I'm better than I think I am, and then here comes my kids to put me in my place. The most recent one, this happened recently. Now, you need to know this about me, and I don't say this so that you will reciprocate. That kind of goes against what we're talking about here, but if you know anything about the love languages, mine is words of affirmation. I love being told how great I am. (laughs) Do you see a problem with this? (laughs) Yeah, which is why God gave me my kids. So, I love words of affirmation, and I don't always get that from my three children. Go figure. They don't tell me how awesome I am very often. So I need to go dig for it. So I'll be sitting talking with my kids, and and I'll just throw out a a question every now and then. Hey, do you guys have a pretty good dad? And Becky just rolls her eyes every time I do this. Like, I need to hear it every now and then. And they'll say, yeah, 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 you're a good dad. I'm like, would you say, like, I'm a really good dad? Yeah, yeah, whatever. You're, You're a really good dad, dad. Would you say, like, I'm the best dad in the world? And without skipping a beat, my oldest, Connor, he says, no. (laughs) And I'm like, Connor, like, well, who's better? You ready for this? I'm not making this up. You can ask my wife. Not making it up. He says, well, God. And I'm like, okay, fine. Am I the second best dad in the whole world? No. I'm like, well, Connor, like, it's, God, I get that, but like, I should be number two. He says, well, there's Jesus. And I'm like, oh my goodness gracious, son. Like, it's called the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's three in one. It's a whole thing. He says, oh, well, then you're fourth. And I'm like, oh my goodness. How do I explain this to you? So that bit me, didn't it? But to the point, he's right. We get elevated so high, we need to be able to pull ourselves down or have other people pull us down. I thought I was number one. I ended up being number (laughs) four-ish. So here's what I want to do with you. I want to take what David did and the phrases that we kind of pulled out, the look at what I've done, look at what I have, all of those, and literally do the exact opposite, that hopefully will become those humbling phrases, that every time we start to hear a me start to think, look at what I have. No, 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 that should be a trigger for something else. So let me put these on the screen. We're gonna talk through these pretty quickly. I would suggest taking a picture of them, take notes of them. I'll go through the scriptures, but here's how I'm hoping this helps you. The column on the left is pretty common. We probably think and say these daily. Look at what I have, look at what I've done, look at what I can do, look at what they think of me. Like those are regular, they're ingrained in our culture and they're seated in, they're rooted in pride. So may they be triggers for what humbles us. Instead of look at what I have, may we change it to no, 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 no. Look at what I've been given. Instead of look at what I've done, no, may that trigger and help me think, 
No, look at my faith in God. Look at all the times that I've relied on God. Look at how I've put my trust in God. Look at how I've been dependent on God. And look at what he's done. Instead of look at what I can do, look at what God can do through me. Lastly, instead of look at what they think of me, may I change it to look at what God thinks of me. Now, you'll see the scripture references on there. That would be great for you this week to dig into those a little bit more, even in context. I'm going to go through them real fast here just so you know that it's not me, but it's actually found in God's word. That first one, look at what I've been given. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. We're told this, what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? In other words, everything that we've been given is truly a gift from God. So instead of the look at what I have, it's look at what God has given me. Look at what he's gifted me with, the time that he's given me, the abilities, the talents, the resources, the friends, the family, the community, the church, the, the job. Look at all that he has given me. I'm just a steward. I'm just a manager of all that he's given me. Instead of look at what I have, it's look at what he's given me. Look at my faith in God. Instead of everything I've accomplished in all of my, the ways that I've performed and succeeded, may I point to the times that I've had faith in God and God has shown up. Romans 12, 3 says this. Don't think you are better than you really are. Man, I love that. <laughs> this is written by Paul and just straight to the point. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us. So if I'm going to measure anything in my life, it's going to be look at the faith that I've put in God. Look at the dependence I've had on him. Look at how I've relied and trusted in him. And look at how he has proved faithful time and time and time again. Look at what God can do through me. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. I have to understand a little bit of the context here. Paul is writing a story where he had some kind of problem in his life. And he kept asking Jesus, please take this away. Please fix this. Please heal this. Whatever it was, it was a major problem for Paul. And the response he got back from Jesus is very telling. Jesus' words to Paul is this. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Paul goes on to then explain how he applied that. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and the hardships and the persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. Check this out. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So it's not look at my power and look at what I can do. It's look at what God can do. Look at what he can do through me. There's a whole other section that I'd love to dive into, but I don't have time, so I'm going to give you homework instead. If I don't get to it on a Sunday morning, you have to do it throughout the week. Here it is. Read Judges 6 and 7 this week. Incredible story. It's one of my favorites on Gideon. Gideon, and he's a judge. That's a whole other thing we can talk about at another point, or if you've got questions, email me. I'd love to walk you through the whole idea. But Gideon, chosen by God to deliver God's people, bottom line. But here's what's interesting. God kept making his army smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because God wanted to show the Israelites the power of God, not the power of Gideon. So read through Judges chapter 6, Judges chapter 7, focus on the beginning part of chapter 7. Great story. You'll see what I'm talking about. But that's a big theme throughout Scripture. God's power working through us, not our own power. Look at what God thinks of me, not what others think of me. Galatians 1.10. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. I can't please both, can I? I can't live my life for trying to please people and also try to please God. I'm going to have to choose. 
may we choose to please our Heavenly Father and to live solely for Him, not for the thoughts and feelings and approval of other people. I think of, I was talking about my kids earlier, they, they played soccer most of their lives, and uh, they're not that old, but when they started really young, you know how this works if you, have, if you had kids that played little soccer, I mean like toddler soccer, like no goalies, no referees, no officials, and you never kept what? You never kept score, right? And so it was literally just like three on three, it was a game, and they would just follow the ball wherever it went. And so after one of these games, my kids, both boys did this. I don't know if it's a boy thing or not, but I feel like it's ingrained in all of us. They would come up after the game, like, guys, you did a great job chasing after the ball and kicking it around. Good job. But they came up so excited. I'm like, dad, 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 we won. I'm like, did you? No goalies, no refs, and no one is keeping score. Your coaches aren't keeping score. The parents aren't keeping score. We're just so proud you're out there trying your best. He's like, no, no, Dad. It was seven to two. We won. I'm like, now that's when they were like four, five, and six. It's interesting how it's ingrained in us, isn't it? Look at what I can do. Look at what I have. We have to have it. We feel like we do. So may they be triggers. When you start to hear the whispers of the devil speaking pride into your life. No, no, no. May, we, may I reflect it back to God. Because when I am weakest, I'm actually strongest in him. See, I'm strongest. We are strongest when we are dependent on Jesus. Which is why the devil is so desperately trying to make us independent. If God desires us to be dependent on him, relying on him, trusting in him, the devil's going to do everything he can to get you to be independent to start thinking, I can do this on my own. I don't need God anymore, which is exactly what he was trying to do with David. The lie of, David, you're strong enough without God. You have enough men to not ask God's permission to go and fight the next army. David, you have enough men to win any battle you want. You don't need God anymore. Don't miss the lie of pride because we are not as strong as we think we are. We are desperate for him. Let me leave you with this out of James chapter 4. Verse 7. So, humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Understand, humble means to put under the authority of. So, if we are elevating ourselves in a prideful way, we are to humble ourselves under God or submit ourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. And I pray that we would not have a divided loyalty. Pray that we would humble ourselves before God, submit ourselves to God that we would watch out for the devil's schemes and the devil's strategies, but we would stand firm, not by our power. Don't please, please don't mishear me. The whole point of this series is we cannot stand firm without Jesus, period. We are strongest when we are weak. We are strongest when we follow his ways, not ours. We are strongest when we are in his words, his word, we are strongest when we are desperate for his grace. We are strongest when we are completely 
dependent on him. I pray we get to that place. As far as I know, the best way for us to move from pride to submission or pride to humility is exactly what James tells us to do. Come close to God. He will come close to you. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. Another way to say that is confession. It's what David did at the end of his story. He came before God and said, I have sinned greatly. Please forgive me. Just saying those words, Jesus, please forgive me, puts us right underneath God's authority and love and grace and forgiveness. This morning, we're going to take communion together to draw near to God, to humble ourselves underneath him by recognizing the greatness of what he has already done. Not what we've done, not look at what I've done, but maybe look at what he has already done for us and his power and his grace and his forgiveness. If you didn't get communion when you came in today, we'll have some guest services, volunteers walking around, just raise your hand, they'll hand them out to you. But let me explain why we do what we do. The bread represents Jesus's body that was broken for us on the cross. The juice represents his blood that was poured out for us. His sacrifice on the cross is what takes our sins away. His death is what gives us life. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the love that you have for us, a love that goes beyond anything we could ever imagine or fathom, a love that, love that did what we could not do on our own. So Jesus, may we put all of our attention and all of our focus on you, not on what we have and what we've done or what we could do or what other, others think of us. May we put all of our attention on what you have given us, gave us your son. May we put all of our attention and focus on what you have done for us on the cross and your faithfulness time and time again. May we focus on your power and your might, on your sovereignty. May we focus on what you think of us, that our identity is wrapped up in you and only you. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. And we confess that we are far from perfect and we have allowed pride to creep into our lives. We humble ourselves before you. We submit ourselves to you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.